0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
3: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's the big weekend, ladies and gentlemen, and in large parts of this country, you won't be able to do very much, I'm afraid. If you're looking for some excitement, here's an idea. You can always put the clocks back a day early and pretend that you're ahead of the game. But if you're in Tier 3 lockdown, I'm afraid it is not going to be much fun. Yesterday, Rishi Sunak let go of the purse strings a little more so that businesses in Tier 2 could get their hands on some money to compensate them for their inability to conduct normal business. But there hasn't exactly been universal rejoicing up and down the land and poor old Andy Burnham still looks about as miserable as he did the other day there are still problems in Wales of course in Scotland in Liverpool in Manchester in South Yorkshire and now there are more lockdowns planned in the home counties and the Midlands as well but there's also a new study from the University of Edinburgh that reveals that staying in actually doesn't do any good you just heard the last guest on Julie Hartley Brewers show saying by the way cats have got it as well so if you've got a cat you're never going to get rid of it Let's get rid of the cat, of course, which wouldn't be recommended. Not on this show. We'll be asking Stuart Jackson where the government money uh, and where the government goes from here. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. Coming up... We'll be bringing you the highlights from last night's presidential debate, which was a lot more civil than the first one, largely thanks to a mute button. Former White House aide and now Trump advisor Sebastian Gorka will give us his verdict from Washington, D.C. And The Sun's Olivia Utley is here to tell us all about the big stories of the week, including this morning's front page news about Prince Andrew and the woman who claims he had sex with her when she was underage. Most of all, of course, we want to hear from you. Uh, What are you doing? Do you know what the rules are where you live? And are you actually obeying them? 0344 499 1000. It's Friday, of course, so it's also time for the Perrier Awards, and homage to yet another brilliant week of broadcasting, uh, and of course, it's in the company of producer Marta Malagon. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Well, it's a very confusing time for a lot of people, isn't it? Because depending on which part of the country you live in, you might be able to go to the pub. Or... You might not be able to go to the pub or you might be able to go to the pub uh, with uh, some members from your own household or you might be able to go to the pub uh, with anyone or you might be able to only go to the pub with people who are not from your own household if you're in a business meeting. Now, I realise, and and I think it's fair to say that uh, Kit Malthouse actually got this right the other day, that if you live in Liverpool, you don't need to know what the rules are uh, in Hailing Island. If you live in Exeter, you don't need to know what the rules are in Barnsley. But it is a bit of a confusing picture. And there isn't any great deal of evidence, I have to say, to suggest that actually telling everybody to sit at home and not do anything for a couple of weeks like they're doing in Wales, like they're basically doing in Scotland and Northern Ireland as well, isn't actually going to make much difference to the spread of the virus. Let's talk to Stuart Jackson, who is, of course, founder, director and strategic counsel at Political Insight, former Tory MP and special advisor to David. David, Stuart, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Now, I'm I'm searching and searching for sort of something positive to say, Stuart. And I know that uh, the government is doing its level best to pay out as much money as it possibly can to help businesses, uh, you know, which are struggling at the moment. But it is quite difficult to find anything particularly
2: kind of positive to look forward to, isn't it? I think the problem is that when Boris uh, has been uh, looking at an economic uptick, has been positive and optimistic, then people have said, you're not taking this seriously and you're not being the statesman. And yet when he's also warned people consistently that this is a major problem, not just a health emergency, but, but a big economic crisis, people have said, you're not giving us any hope we we don't know when this catastrophe is going to end. I think that he's in a difficult position. And I think, as Steve Barclay said this morning, you know, when the circumstances change, you have to alter your strategy. And therefore, I think it is strange that the Chancellor should announce three different sets of proposals in a month. But we're not in normal times. And I think the fact he is flexible and he is prepared to to spend taxpayers' money to save businesses and jobs in the long term and prevent economic scarring is a good thing. And I think most people would agree with that.
3: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And certainly I don't go along with any of the uh, the, the Keir Starmer sort of Labourites who believe that uh, somehow the government has been proved wrong because they've been somehow starving the north of funds. I mean, they've backdated the money they're giving out for tier two. So what more could they do?
2: Well, I think if this narrative that the, this is a government driven by what happens in London and they hate the North really stood up and it doesn't, it's absolute nonsense. Then clearly Dan Jarvis in South Yorkshire and Steve Rotherham, the mayor of of, uh, the Liverpool city region would not have settled with the government quietly and would not have supported the proposals in so doing. I think Andy Burnham unfortunately has been grandstanding and has sought to beat the government with a non-existent stick and it's backfired to a certain extent on him and i feel a bit sorry because actually i i do rate andy burnham i think he's done a reasonable job as mayor of greater manchester but i think he over the pudding and he forced the prime minister to basically face him down uh, and that's not been very good for andy burnham or greater manchester but no. we're through that
3: No, and I think the point is, is an awful lot of people in Manchester don't agree with Andy Burnham either. You know, the difficulty with this whole... And I spoke to uh, a a previous colleague of yours earlier this week about this whole business of, you know, devolution and devolving of powers to the regions. And I mean, I think that this week it proved that that may have gone a step too far, to be honest.
2: Yeah, it was a David Cameron initiative uh, with George Osborne in the um, early 2000s or the 2010s. Uh, I I think there are times where you have to put aside uh, local governance for the national good. This is a national health emergency, a national economic and jobs crisis. And I think where local leaders have shown leadership and put their party affiliation aside and supported the government, they've got the best results. And frankly, they've got the money needed to save the jobs and businesses in their local areas. Uh, but you're right. I mean, there is a limit to devolution. There's a limit to the powers that in a unitary state, which the UK is, it does have a centralised government and parliament. There is a limit to how much local people can do. And the irony, of course, is that Nicola Sturgeon is lauded as a great local leader, uh, you know, the Uh, First Minister of her country. Actually, by any uh, reasonable and fair analysis, she hasn't handled coronavirus really any better than Boris Johnson, and in many respects worse, but her spin has been a lot better.
3: Well, I mean, the spin down here has been a lot better, but I'm not sure it's been great up in Scotland because there are lots of people up there uh, that I've spoken to who are fans of independence and fans of the SNP generally, but are getting pretty fed up uh, with the way that uh, that the Scottish government is operating. In fact, there's a lawsuit that's been launched um, by the music business, which is basically now seeking compensation from the government because of the fact that they can't perform any kind of music whatsoever. They can't even play music in a pub.
2: Well, the fact is that the, um, the the level of debt, if Scotland were an independent nation, it would have the highest debt in Europe. Yeah. And it's subsidised significantly by the English taxpayer, uh, hobbling the business and commercial community for the sake of um, demonstrably unproven science, because we don't know quite where we are with coronavirus, for several weeks and months is not going to help the long-term economic prosperity of Scotland. And if anything, it will actually undermine the economic and political case for independence uh, in a, a likely referendum, which incidentally, I don't think is going to happen anyway. So well, I, th- I think essentially Nicola Sturgeon needs to concentrate on a day job, which is education, which is health, which is transport, which is uh, social security, not grandstanding about referendum yeah. uh, that may or may not happen.
3: Well, this is the thing. I mean, and also, as it was pointed out by Boris Johnson the other day, whenever Wales decides to have some kind of two week fire break lockdown, as they called it, or Scotland decides to tell people to get ready for a digital Christmas, they then uh, make a phone call to London and ask for some more money.
2: Exactly. You know, well, let, let, let's put aside this. Uh, nonsense of calling it a circuit breaker. I mean, it's just a a ridiculous euphemism for another national lockdown. I think the problem with the Labour Party is incoherent. What you saw uh, with the Andy Burnham situation is he's effectively, distinctly at odds with Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer and Annalise Dodds have flirted with another national lockdown with a catastrophic impact that would have on jobs, businesses, mental health, loneliness, old people, family life, etc. But at the same time, Andy Burnham said, uh, you can't have a a lockdown in Greater Manchester because the evidence isn't there. They're all over the shop. And I think it it uh, behoves um, them to support the cabinet and the prime minister in a national crisis.
3: Well, there was a couple of videos that were doing the rounds yesterday on social media, both from elderly women, one in Fife, which was heartbreaking, which I discussed with Dan Wooten on his show yesterday afternoon, where this old lady who's over 100 years of age says that she needs help. She wants to see her family. She doesn't want to be there on her own, unable to see anyone. She doesn't want to be marooned in a care home and uh, un- un- unable to touch anybody else. She's, she's you know, she, she admits herself she hasn't got long to go, but she needs to see her children. And it really seems to me to be unusually cruel that something can't be done about that.
2: I think one of the positive things that will come out of this crisis, and there have been many thousands of deaths, uh, sickness uh, and consistent illness for nine months for many people. But one of the things that will come out of this, I think is a very strong consensus to do something about social care and I think it's heartbreaking that some, a minority of social care settings, care homes have been very draconian in the way they've treated friends and family vis-a-vis the local residents in those care homes. And I think the funding and governance of care homes is one of the things that will need to be looked at once we're through, we have a vaccine uh, and we need to look at compassion uh, looking after people and 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 not this jobs worth attitude we shouldn't have a situation where husbands for instance in their 70s and 80s are not even allowed on the on the property mm. they're not allowed to go into a care home to even talk to their relatives and their loved ones. That can't be right. It's not compassionate. And I think we need to look at that again.
3: I mean, there must be a way, surely, surely to God, we can, we can, you know, we're a reasonably, you know, agile country. We're a reasonably imaginative people. Surely there must be a way of constructing in a car park of of a care home, an ability to somehow take somebody outside to meet with their family. Surely that can be done.
2: I think that that pragmatic and practical approach has been pursued by the vast bulk of care homes and the management. And don't get me wrong, the staff of care homes do a fantastic job. It's a very difficult job. Not many people want to do that job. Uh, It's not well paid. And they do it for love and compassion and care uh, and and a calling. And I think they're right. But in a minority of cases, there has been this bureaucracy and computer says no attitude which has caused unnecessary upset and heartbreak. And I think that's one of the things we need to look at. And the Care Quality Commission and local authorities need to look at how care homes have responded. Also, of course, the provision of PPE and taking uh, people with coronavirus from hospital into care homes. Again, that needs to be looked at. Uh, once the virus is through,
3: yeah, and I mean, as far as the the, the government's kind of uh, po- policies go, I mean, obviously they've had to change um, the, the, the the treasury situation because of the way that uh, the way it's been described to me, anyway. That Rishi Sunak, when he when he made his last kind of um, uh, suggestions about who should be backed and who should be given money, he thought that by now we might be in a better position e- economically, but we're actually not. Um, but do you see, or do the people that you talk to in the in the, in the government see? Uh, an end point to this, because we're now hearing that some of these uh, provisions might be in place for six months, which takes us all the way through to April, certainly takes us beyond Christmas. But Boris Johnson has said that he would like to try and have as normal a Christmas as possible.
2: Well, I think Christmas and the new year is the staging post, because, as I said earlier, Boris is naturally someone who uh, exudes hope and positivity and optimism. And I think it's very difficult for him Not to do that. It's also difficult for him as a libertarian to have to impose these draconian restrictions on what is now half the English population plus Scotland and Wales. I do think the new year will be a key staging point. I don't believe the second wave can be compared to the first wave in March, April, May. I think it's a lot lower. I think if you look at infections, if you look at hospital admissions, survival rates, fatalities, It's demonstrably not as bad as it was. But we're, of course, all waiting on new treatments developing to ameliorate the impact of the disease. And, of course, the vaccine and hopefully AstraZeneca and the work they're doing with Oxford University will be great for this country. But it will be great for the world if they can develop um, a definitive vaccine. And I think that's possible. But in answer to your question, hopefully things will be different by January. But let's look at what the government have done tax deferrals, guaranteed loans, business rate cuts, local authority funding, business grants. As you say, even today, they're shelling out between 11 and 13 billion pound extra. You know, we're going to have two trillion pounds of debt by the end of this process. But frankly, I don't see and I would say this to my many Tory MP friends. There is no alternative to this. What else do you do but let the economy uh, shrivel on the vine and damage done that will last 10 or 15 years. The government cannot preside over that.
3: No, absolutely right. Um, the other interesting sort of development, of course, I'm getting quite a few tweets on this already today, uh, is that in Wales, the uh, essential items only rule kicks in. And I think this is what people find rather frustrating. You know, they might understand what you've just said, that this this has to be done. There is no alternative. You know, there must be some way of keeping the government. Um, Uh, paying for what is the economy, keeping the economy afloat and all of that. But Robert has tweeted me. He says, you're going to love this, Mike. Under lockdown in Wales, I can go into a supermarket, but only buy essentials. I'm not allowed to buy a shirt, a cup, a saucepan, pens. It's getting ridiculous. It's bad enough we've been banned for weeks already uh, from our grandkids visiting us. So in Wales now, uh, apparently Mark Drakeford is going to design exactly what is an essential item and what isn't. I mean, who, who, who knows what an essential item is?
2: Well, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe these uh, loonies that say you know this is all an evil government plot to to force no, us No, I into don't a total... I don't think they're clever yeah. enough,
1: Stuart. <laughs> no.
2: <laughs> well, that is one point, of course, Mike. But but I do think people, British people, are, are they're resilient, but they don't like to be bullied and bossed around, no. or to be told. you can't buy a pen, but you can buy some pasta. I mean, it's ridiculous. Mark Dreyford should get on, again, with his job of running Wales and not micromanage the the retail shopping choices of the people in Wales. They don't like that sort of nonsense. And I think people have to be pretty pragmatic. And they have to be reasonable, uh, and it needs to be balanced. Uh, the the uh, proposals that they are put forward in Wales. Otherwise people just will ignore them and that won't be good for anyone.
3: Well that is the thing and I mean a lot of the study, uh, which I'm not going to get into with you, I'm going to talk to the doctor about it later on, the still on the front page of the Mail today, says that basically staying in doesn't really stop the virus because an awful lot of people, one, don't stay in and if they do stay in, they're more than likely to infect other people. The other problem John, uh, sorry uh, Stuart, is, is I've got a message here from John who says COVID-19 did not feature in the top 10 causes of death in September for England and Wales. It was in august either in england it was the 19th most common cause of death in wales it was the 24th most common cause of death and so at some point the government's going to have to look at all of that and say you know are we overdoing it a bit
2: well you are spot on mike i think there are two the two other things that are going to come out of this crisis uh, will be the use of data and the common acceptance of data and i think the problem is the the poor management of data by governments over 20 or 30 years has led to an issue with how you count illness and fatalities for COVID. Mm. I think we've got to look at that again. Everyone laughs at Dominic Cummings and says, you know, he's, he's a pointy head obsessed with data. It's pretty important that you've got the right data to make decisions upon. The other thing is procurement. What we've seen is, you know, often poor procurement. All governments have not got procurement right so data and procurement again are going to be areas that a government is ne- going to need to look for if we have another pandemic as we inevitably will maybe not for 5 or 10 years or 20 years but we will have another one yeah, data I you mean, minute, we, haven't got of, we
3: haven't got rid of this one yet. That's a depressing thought, Stuart. We might as well end it on that. Stuart, thanks very much indeed. Stuart Jackson there uh, talking to us from Political Insight, uh, where he's the founder, director of Strategic Council, former Tory MP, of course, special advisor to David Davis as well. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I'm delighted to say Olivia Utley joins us in the studio uh, as we speak. Uh, I'm not here next week, so this is my last show for uh, until next month, actually, which is uh, rather exciting for me. Um, but very nice to see you. Prince Andrew, front page of The Sun, front page of The Daily Mail, Maxwell court file riddle. Uh, this is the story that just won't go away, isn't it?
4: Yeah, he is absolutely up to his eyes. Um, we've heard at The Sun that American prosecutors are getting really fed up with him not complying at all with the case, sort of right. thinking he's above it. And if he thinks that they're just going to sort of let him go, it's all going to go away. Completely wrong. <laughs> These sort of stories always make me feel so sorry for the poor Queen. Yes. Just. Such just waking a Doing an amazing job, waking up pages. to more of this, and then all of these absolutely rubbish excuses that both him and Maxwell come out with. This one saying that they couldn't have had sex in the bath because the bath was too small. I yes. mean, it's just oh, I was in Pizza Express woking, and or I don't sweat all yes. over again. Oh, I
3: don't remember meeting her, which is the same as a kind of non-denial denial, isn't
4: it? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um,
3: and then in the sun in the spread inside six and page six and seven, um, the heir who cannot be named, uh, Andrews, blanked out of various uh, documents. 75 times.
4: Yeah, but um, we all know exactly who it is. It's, I think the Sun front page sort of says it all with the <laughs> very obvious picture of him with a bit of black in front of his eyes. Um, so, yeah, it's not going away. It just every day, we've sort of grown used to these kind of stories coming out and we just think, oh, yeah, Andrew's a bit of a dodgy royal. But actually, it's shocking. I mean really scandalous how deeply he's implicated in this. well also
3: the whole idea of his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein you know, one, uh, was bad enough right, but then two, the fact that he then continued to be friends with him and continued to remain in touch with him after he was convicted of child sex offences and then not only that but then went to New York, was pictured with him walking in Central Park, spent about four nights with him uh, in order to explain to him that he couldn't be friends with him anymore.
4: And then told Emily Maitlis that he didn't regret any of it because he learned a lot. Right.
3: Bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. bizarre. So I mean the time frame of this is is probably running down as well because presumably US attorneys are going to be saying at at least if they don't do it before the end of this year they're going to have to subpoena him aren't they?
4: Yeah I'm sure they'll subpoena him Um, that's what we've heard and it's I mean having a member of the royal family having to appear in court even if it's virtually even if it's as a witness it's a proper full-on scandal and The way he's burying his head in the sand is just ridiculous. It's clearly just a whole life of being brought up to think that he's above the law and that he can get away with it. Um, And he just can't. So, yeah, I think expect this to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah, I mean,
3: even the Queen has managed to move with the times. I mean, I think it maybe took Princess Diana's death for her to do that. But since then, the Queen has been pretty spot on Mm, on almost everything she's ever said, you know. And between him and Harry and Meghan, I mean, goodness gracious. To
4: be fair to the rest of the royals, though, I've been amazed at how well they have done. The I think William I think and Kate have done William and well. Kate and Charles, I think yeah. he's had a pretty good pandemic. And right. Princess Anne, that lovely documentary yes. of her. Yes. Yeah, so. Well, funnily enough,
3: I mean, just the other day I was talking about Meghan and Harry because they'd done yet another one of these kind of webinars with Time Magazine about how Word they needed to save me. the world and re engineer it and all this kind of thing. Mm. And meanwhile, uh, over in uh, London, of course, uh, Prince William and, and Kate were off at a KFC. And this, the stark kind of contrast of that doesn't bear thinking about
4: that. Oh, absolutely. And poor old William and Kate always trotting off in the rain to mundane yeah, little events in right. Bower oh, and or something. And that's the job. And mm. Harry and men can hack it. And no, I've got Exactly Andrew.
3: right. Now, the Mail uh, have got a similar story on Prince Andrew, but they're talking about a phone call that he apparently made to Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, which they're quoting as some kind of... Uh, a smoking gun as well right
4: yeah um it's just sort of coming at all angles now um i think prince andrew's pretty lucky that that all of these coronavirus stories are coming thick and fast over the past few months because otherwise it really would be a huge story um and yeah you've got the phone call you've got uh the letters the, the uh, he's being implicated in these court documents here so yeah going to get worse and worse and worse does it look good Andrew.
3: speaking of uh the covid stories i'm rather enjoying today there's a great piece in the sun um on page 12 um which is basically a quiz. (laughs) Time to get tested for COVID. The police chief's got it wrong. Politicians are confused. Now, how are you going to do on these baffling rules? Because I think a lot of people don't really know for sure. I mean, I've seen restaurants advertising... Um, for example saying things like uh, the Wolseley in uh, in Piccadilly yeah. saying you know, uh, and we know that you can't come here with any of your friends because you don't live in the same household but of course we are able to host a business meeting for you so sort of nudge, nudge, wink, yeah. wink, just tell <laughs> us you're having a business meeting, you come for dinner you know, so people are openly flaunting the rules anyway.
4: I know and I've really noticed that, a huge change from last time, I, during the first lockdown pretty much all my friends were sticking to the rules some of them thought they were a bit silly but they stuck to them anyway and this time just everyone is trying to find a way to to get around right. it um, and it's so confusing I really like the Sun quiz because it just points out all of these ridiculous absurdities you're allowed to if you're from if you're from a tier one a place, you can if you're from a tier two place you can go and stay in a tier one place with your tier one friend, but tier one person can't come, come to a yeah. tier two person. And Christmas is just going to be the most confusing thing. I'm trying to work out my Christmas plans at the moment. Well in Scotland
3: um, they've told everyone up there that, that they cr- have to have a digital is Christmas. Yeah. But funnily enough, then apparently Nicola Sturgeon last night had to issue a statement to say that Santa uh, was in fact exempt from the COVID rules because everybody's child was going, <laughs> yeah, what well, does this mean? Does this mean Father Christmas isn't coming?
4: Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, but I mean, I hate to say that Scots might have it right, but but um, at least they're sort of dampening expectations a bit. I mean, it's slightly weird the way our government hasn't really talked about the fact no. that Christmas obviously is going to be really different because of their ridiculous rules. Well, I think
3: they're desperate to try and not affect everybody's Christmas because I think they know that people will just really lose the plot. Absolutely, and I think there will be people who'll say, "Well, you know what? Get lost. Are you going to send a COVID marshal round to my house? Yeah, that's what I'm I'm looking for." <laughs> big,
4: big civil disobedience. I think that might well happen. So, here's away. here's
3: a, let me ask you a couple of these to see if you know. Right? <laughs> I'm moving house from one tier three property to another. Uh, can eight of my neighbours from different households meet up to help lug the furniture? A. No, you have, haven't you heard of the rule of six, you plonker. B. Yes, as long as two of the eight are children. Or C. Yes, moving house is exempt from the rule of six. Oh, my goodness. I didn't I, actually know this one. I
4: don't know any, it could be any of those three.
3: Apparently, it is in fact C. Um, the moving house is exempt for the rule of six. So Ooh. presumably you can have as many people as you want helping you to move house, even in a tier three lockdown.
4: Oh, excellent.
3: So just tell everyone you're moving house yeah, and just great. keep driving oh, about. Oh, it's an election one, night party. Maybe I'll just pl- move house yeah, on from, election yeah, night. Yeah, just move house and yeah. go from one house. And you actually could you could have it in two houses. Couldn't you you yeah, could have great. a party in two houses pretending you're moving from one to the other. <laughs> that will be great. Here's one. Well, I'm not going to read that one out. My local pub in Lancashire does a decent pasty for lunch, but falls in tier three. Is it allowed to open? <laughs> yes if the pasty is served with chips and salad and on a plate as a main meal yes even if you just have a pint and some crisp or yes you can have the pasty wrapped in a serviette while standing at the bar
4: yeah, ridiculously I think it's A. It is A. You're right. <laughs> I remember this because yeah. obviously corona doesn't coronavirus doesn't travel as long as you've got chips and salads. No, exactly. Playing. As yeah. long as it's a main meal. The problem is not enough chips. Yes. That's why coronavirus. Snacking is, is not allowed
3: under <laughs> the new Covid restrictions. I saw a guy actually um, on Twitter today who's in a pub somewhere in tier 3 who's making um selling meals for a penny in order to qualify to open his pub. Mm,
4: clever, right? Yeah.
3: Because he doesn't really want people to come in and buy the food, um, but I guess he just wants to kind of give them something to make it look as though... But we've seen all these pictures, haven't we, lately, of, of police walking through pubs, looking for, for, for people to make sure they're eating as well as drinking. I've seen pictures from London last night of police standing around in Soho at sort of, you know, 10 to 10,
4: looking to make sure everybody's getting out of the pub. I mean, it's madness, isn't it? No, it's complete madness. And then I feel so sorry for restaurants. I mean, I've, most of them seem to just be doing it with a nudge, nudge, wink, wink at Wolseley. But then I was talking to a friend who tried to book a table for five friends at a restaurant and she had to fill in a box saying that they all lived at the same address. And then she got a call from the restaurant saying they all needed to bring proof of address when they turned up. And you just think, poor places. This is the thing that the Metropolitan Police have
3: been asking people to do, isn't it? Oh, my God. Bring, you know, passports, bring, you know, council tax. I mean, people in London, because we were talking about this yesterday, in the pub, funnily enough, people in London tend to live um with other people they don't tend to live with you know just members of their family Absolutely. particularly young people who are here working yeah you know so there may be six or seven of them in a house um they can't all go to the pub but they do all live but there might not be any proof that they all live together
4: yeah i know i mean who,
3: who i mean has, if you live with five people they haven't all got their names on the council no tracks, exactly
4: and everyone has it digitalized anyway i yeah. can not find any proof dressing or how
3: about this part. i live in tier one my granny lives in tier three can i visit her Uh, of course you're in a low risk area B uh, yes but only in full PPE no (laughs) C it breaches coronavirus government guidelines unless she's in your support bubble C? That's tough. Is it C sixteen C? Yes, correct. Oh, well done. I'm you an sure expert. You this... I should be
4: a COVID marshal. You
3: should. Well, you should be running the actual uh, police because the police chief was up in uh, Commons a Select Committee earlier this week and he didn't know the answer to any of their questions <laughs> because he said he didn't have the rules in front of oh, him.
4: Oh yeah, and then there was Kit Malthouse, the yeah. Housing Minister, saying he didn't know the restrictions. Well, why Kit should Malthouse he didn't actually... live there.
3: Yeah, I mean Kit Malthouse actually made quite a good point, which that was people basically people should educate themselves. Well, no, but he also said if you're in you know one part of the country, you don't need to know what the rules are in another part. But that's not strictly true because, say, for example, if you live in, I don't know, uh, Berkshire, and they've just put Slough, I think, in as a tier two now. If you live in Berkshire and work in London, are you allowed to travel between the two places? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. I
4: know. I've got a friend who lives on just on the outskirts of London, just, just about in Kent, and she's in tier three, and we were desperately trying to work out if I was allowed to go round right. to hers for dinner. We thought, Well, when, we, when yeah. uh,
3: they first announced <laughs> that they were putting pubs into tier two, I said to Kevin O'Sullivan last week, but well, all we've got to do is get on a train at London Bridge, go to um, Seven Oaks, which is in Kent, yeah. which is still in tier one, and we can have some uh, a few pints and come back on the train.
4: But well, this is the other thing I don't understand. Wouldn't you and Kevin O'Sullivan, as colleagues, if you were talking about work and the park, well, that's a would work you be meeting. allowed to be there? Yeah, exactly. Well, then it's a work meeting. But then meeting. when you stop talking about work, are the police going to come and
5: arrest you? Well,
3: apparently, you? also, according <laughs> to the figures here, uh, according to the, to the Sun quiz, um, if you have office space where you can have an office, a business meeting, then you're not allowed to go to the pub to have one. But if you're a freelancer and you don't have an office, oh, you are allowed to go.
4: Oh, interesting.
3: But are you allowed to invite somebody from another business in here? Maybe not. So you have to go to the pub.
4: Ah. Also, all of our meeting rooms in the sun have signs on them saying only one person per meeting room. So <laughs> <It's not much laughs> we better go to the pub. <laughs> yeah, not much exactly. of a meeting.
3: What, a meeting with yourself? Yeah. Or I suppose a Zoom meeting.
4: Yeah, it's make
3: sure Oh I my god. <sighs> anyway, let's talk about the uh, furlough scheme because that's coming to an end soon but t- this morning interesting news. 2 billion pounds they think has now been lost to criminals in the furlough cash fraud that's been going on. And you, you sort of I mean I don't really blame the government for this no. but, but I mean I guess it was bound to happen.
4: Yeah, it was absolutely bound to happen. Um it had to be introduced so quickly they couldn't really go through it all. They couldn't give it sort of proper robust scrutiny, the furlough scheme. But, you know, it's not what you want to be reading when you're finding out that the government's now giving no. another 13 billion to uh, help save the hospitality industry. Which oh, I, know. I mean, I'm glad that they have, because once they impose imposed restrictions, it would be really unfair to make those pubs just drive them into yes. the ground and lo- lose a lot of jobs. But 13 billion, we just sort of chuck away figures like that as though it's nothing. 13 billion is the entire annual budget for the police in England and Wales. And that's incredible, isn't and it? And that's just going the latest to But This, is why, of this, five that, this packages other story
3: that sort of won't go away is the, is the free school meals at Marcus
4: Rashford. Yeah. And
3: they're saying, "Well, why can't we get money for that?" And that's going to be the cry now from Labour for the rest of time, isn't it? Mm, for why can you not give us money? You've got 12 billion for this, 13 billion for that. Why can't we have 5 million for this?
4: Exactly. I know. I know. It it reminds me of if I've gone and Blown loads of money on an expensive meal, then I see a nice skirt I like in yeah. the shop, and I think, "Oh well, I spent loads that's of money on a meal. I may as well buy that skirt." Yes. Actually, I should be thinking: spent loads of money on that meal, shouldn't buy that shouldn't skirt. Buy the skirt, not the well, way you, my do, mind works. you
3: do get a bit carried away, exactly, and it's that's a, what the government's going to do. It's a do bit now. like holidays. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I had thought at one point of going abroad. Um, for half term but then it just became so complicated and I couldn't wait to see uh, whether it was going to be safe or not whether it's going to be quarantine required and all of that so in the end just gave that up and hadn't so I'm not going anywhere abroad but at this point you would pay some ludicrous amount of money just to go somewhere if you knew for sure that it was going to be fine yeah you know I mean I was a late night appeal last night uh, from my kids and their mother can we not just go to the Maldives and I'm like (laughs) well no because if I suddenly started booking the Maldives the night before we had to go it probably cost about 20
4: grand or something. Mm, would be nice though, wouldn't it? It would be nice. Yeah, maybe. Maybe so <laughs> maybe much I do have it. to drink yeah. later. Forget the island wine, ghosts them all Yeah, I know, yeah. exactly
3: right. So, how about uh, the poppy appeal? That must be uh, uh, coming up fairly soon. We're almost in November.
4: Yeah, so Sun's campaign is doing really well. Um, we've raised 13,000 already, which is great. So, the problem with the poppy appeal is that a third of the 40,000 annual poppy sellers um, are classed as vulnerable and yeah. are staying at home this year. So, right. I mean, I've already noticed you don't see the poppy. I haven't sellers seen it. I haven't seen any, in no. fact, I haven't seen them in supermarkets right. either. So the Suns launched this big campaign asking people to donate online or to bulk buy poppies and sell them to your neighbour. Good excuse to go around your neighbour's yeah. house for a chat as well. I um, mean, I wonder
3: what the rules are on poppy selling. I mean, can you actually can, can anybody actually sell poppies? I mean if you if you apply to, to the British Legion or whatever, can you can you become a poppy seller?
4: I don't know. Mm. I've got I mean, apparently it's only a third of the forty thousand that can't do it, so I'm guessing but the rest are allowed to sell. Well, poppies. I normally but it around, I around seen here on the tubes yet. and
3: stuff. I usually would see relatively young men and women in uniform doing it. So yeah. they, maybe they're allowed to do it.
4: Maybe they are. I think that's quite a London thing, though. Right. Whenever you go to the region, okay. of sort of elderly poppy sellers okay. can't do it this year. So you're basically trying but to make sure that you cover that. To, uh, yeah, that to amount. make up the loss, yeah. exactly. Um, obviously, the Legion's not the only one suffering. Charities are just in a complete mess yeah. this year. Um, but. Yeah, it's a great campaign. So get online line and, and donate to the Royal British Legion through The Sun if you can.
3: Fantastic stuff. Olivia, thank you very much indeed. Olivia Utley, uh, Deputy Leader Writer at The Sun, of course. We've got loads of calls to take, so we want to hear from you depending on where you are. Because if you're in Stoke or you're in Slough, you're going to be in lockdown soon. Uh, if you're in Lancashire, uh, if you're in Yorkshire, uh, if you're in Greater Manchester, if you're in Wales, we need to hear from you as well. Uh, have you had any interesting uh, exchanges trying to go shopping
2: in Wales because of this ridiculous rule um, about essential
5: Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.
1: The 2020 U.S. presidential election on Talk Radio. Bet on the U.S. election with Betfair with odds that reflect the race in real time. Odds speak louder than words.
3: 18 plus be Now we're going to be speaking to Sebastian Gorka thanks to Betfair, our U.S. election coverage partner, very shortly. But first, let's have a listen uh, to what was said and what was exchanged last night in the big debate uh, about COVID-19. I said, you know... This is dangerous, and you catch it. And you know, I caught it, I learned a lot, I learned a lot, great doctors, great hospitals, and now I recovered. 999 of young people recover. 99% of people recover. We have to recover. We can't close up our nation. We have to open our school, and we can't close up our nation, or you're not going to
0: have a nation. And of course, the CDC has said young people can get sick with COVID-19 and can pass it. Vice President Biden, I want to talk broadly about strategy, though. You can have I respond f- to that? 30 seconds, please. 30 and then seconds. I have a question. No, number one, he says that we're, uh, you know, we're learning to live with it. People are learning to die with it. You folks home will have an empty chair at the kitchen table this morning. That man or wife going to bed tonight and reaching over to try to touch their — out of habit where their wife or husband was, is gone learning to live with it. Come on, we're dying with it, because he has never said, you said it's dangerous. When's the last time? Is it really dangerous still? Are we dangerous? You tell the people it's dangerous now? What should they do about the danger? And you say, I take no responsibility. Let me talk about your two. Excuse me. Of, I, take very full, I
3: take full responsibility. It's not my fault that it came here, it's China's fault. And you know what? It's not Joe's fault that it came here either. It's China's fault. They kept it from going into the rest of China for the most part, but they didn't keep it from coming out to the world, including Europe and ourselves. Donald Trump there talking to Joe Biden and saying that he admitted that COVID-19 was dangerous. Joe Biden challenging him on it, saying, well, you haven't really said it was dangerous lately. But also the main thing, and I think a lot of people should remember this, right? This came from China. You know, it wasn't invented in the basement of the White House. It wasn't made uh, in the Pentagon, right? It came from China. And Donald Trump has always said that, and he's quite right to have said so. Let's talk now to Sebastian Gorka, uh, who's going to give us his verdict. Sebastian, a very good morning to you. Welcome.
1: Good morning, Mike. What is this I hear about Perry Awards? The the Independent Republic of Mike Graham making mistakes. I don't believe. It I know. It's
3: a shocking thing that's put together by Martha <laughs> Melagon, my brilliant producer, uh, who somehow manages to eke out a few, you know, minor errors that I may have said over the course fake of the week. News. It's absolutely fake, fake news. news. Thank you fake for sticking up for me. Now let's talk about fake news because Joe Biden last night de- denied uh, that he wanted to do away with fracking. Uh, President Trump has put out a tweet rather helpfully, uh, in which he's quoted as saying that he's going to do away with fracking.
1: Yeah, this is um, there are a couple of kill shots during yesterday's debate in which the president did uh, majestically. But let's start with uh, the prior context. Just before the debate, a former naval officer called Tony Bablinski said, uh, yeah, the Hunter Biden laptop is real. I was the CEO of the joint venture company and the Chinese were buying access to the White House. And the big guy in the emails is Joe Biden. And he was taking a 50 percent cut. So just like the last debate with Hillary Clinton, where we brought the uh, women who had been raped or sexually assaulted by uh, Bill Clinton to the debate, To the actual site of the debate yesterday there was a big upset for uh, joe biden and that will continue because today that individual will be presenting the three phones he used in that business with all the evidence of the corruption to the senate uh with regards to what happened on the debate stage he committed suicide joe biden committed political suicide at the end of the debate he said oh oh I, I i'm I'm in favor of fracking you know i have I've never said anything about right. fossil fuels being bad, and if you got that video, Mr. President, put it on your website. Well, we have the video. He has said at his pathetic town halls and his pathetic micro rallies that we are going to get rid of for all fossil yeah. fuels, and then at the end of the debate said, uh yeah, we're going to transition." Uh, into sustainable energy. Yeah. Well, he just lost Pennsylvania. He just lost Texas. He lost all those states where we, we make a huge business exporting energy from America, Mike.
3: Absolutely right. And of course, Kamala Harris is also on that video uh, because she's yes. right at the end saying, you know, yes, we want to ban uh, fracking. It's very, very clear and very plain. And they don't seem to understand that apart from the, the kind of the loony lefties in California, America runs on oil. America runs on fossil fuels. Um, You know, I'm always very impressed with that when I go there because, you know, you can have as many electric cars as you like uh, in Europe, but that's not what's happening uh, on 405 when I sat in a a 16-lane traffic jam in the middle of uh, Los Angeles. I can tell you that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and there's another another small detail. Uh, Where do you get the electricity from when you plug in your Prius, when you plug in your very fancy Tesla? Guess what? It comes from coal-powered power stations. And Joe Biden is the man who says, I'm the kid from Scranton. I'm from the coal mining area of Pennsylvania. He just lost all of those votes. The fact is, this president has done something remarkable. I don't know if your listeners are aware of that. In the first uh, the first time ever in our republic's history, the United States, because of our re- allowing fracking to occur, has become a net exporter of energy. We are selling more energy than we need and that's great for business and Joe Biden just said I'm going to kill it all.
3: Absolutely and one of the great sort of um, I would say cut throughs that that Donald Trump has managed to make in the past couple of weeks because I think the last time you and I spoke Sebastian after the first debate you know that went well but then the president was sick for a while with coronavirus he came back from that you know but he was trailing in the polls. He's coming back now in the polls absolutely but I think this this money question is, is, is something that will trouble an awful lot of people. You know, how do you go from being, you know, a senator on a hundred and odd thousand dollars a year to a multimillionaire with a massive amount of property uh, and with, with, with fingers in all sorts of financial pies and a son who appears to be some kind of business genius?
1: Yeah, this is, this is the, the the real juxtaposition between these two individuals. And the, And the president, you know, hit Joe Biden in the gut with this last night. We have one individual, my boss, Donald Trump, who was a billionaire before he ran for public office and then lost money when he became president. Not only that, in the last four years, Mike, the president has given back more than a million dollars in federal pay because he doesn't take a paycheck. He gives it back to the federal government because he said, I'm not here to make money. On the other hand, you've got a guy who's been in politics for 47 years on a government paycheck, who has villas, who has houses, who has summer homes. And in the first year he left office, his declared income in 2017 was $17 million. Now, how did that happen? And did he pay taxes on the monies, the cuts that we now know he was given with those deals to China did he pay taxes on those deals? We now know. Yesterday, thanks to Tony Bablinski, this naval officer who was part of those companies, a five—just th- 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 one, just one transaction. The communist partner, the communist Chinese partner, gave the Biden family, not Hunter Biden, Mike, the the Biden family, a five million dollar unsecured, forgivable loan. What is an unsecured, forgivable loan? It's a bribe. And now the Biden campaign have got to explain that for the next 11 days, and they will not have an explanation.
3: And well, he hasn't also really properly denied any of the accusations that have been made against him. He's kind of done the old non-denial denial, sidestepped it, you know, said he hasn't taken money from foreign powers. Well, that doesn't mean you haven't taken money from foreign entities, does it?
1: No, and, and you have to read when when the Berblinski press conference was held yesterday, this incredible moment, afterwards, the Biden campaign issued a statement. And do you know what the wording is that they used? They had, you, you, your your viewers, your listeners have to check this out. The Biden campaign, after this bombshell yesterday before the debate, said there is no indication that joe biden took monies from foreign interests no indication what does that mean it doesn't mean he didn't take money it's it means that we have no we've hid it very well so even his campaign knows that he's in big trouble
3: i have no recollection senator that sounds very much like doesn't it or or indeed the bill the great bill clinton line that at the time i believed i was telling the truth Uh, So
1: it couldn't have been a lie. (laughs) No, 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 Mike. It depends what your definition of is is. Yes. Remember that one.
3: Of course. Absolutely right. Now, uh, I've got to draw your attention to something that was pointed out to me as well. Four years ago, the New York Times uh, did a poll uh, and they had the chances of winning between Hillary Clinton and Donald (laughs) Trump. 93% was the chance of winning for Hillary Clinton, 7% for Donald Trump. So, I mean, I I imagine the New York Times might be trying to get a slightly more accurate uh, poll going this year. (laughs)
1: I I have, Mike, I have saved that tweet uh, forever and I will be using (laughs) it regularly. And there's an even better one. On the night of the election in 2016, the Huffington Post, that bloody rag, Mm. said that that Hillary Clinton has a 94% chance of winning and and, 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 uh, uh, Donald Trump has a 6% chance of winning. It's delicious. And what's really interesting. What's fascinating in all the key battleground states right now, just less than two weeks before the election, Donald Trump, my boss, is actually actually beating Biden. He is ahead of where he was uh, against Hillary four years ago. So what does that tell you?
3: Well, if Biden's lost Pennsylvania, I was told uh, by, by a pundit just about a week or so ago, if he doesn't win Pennsylvania, he doesn't get the White House.
1: No, Pennsylvania is is really the crucial, crucial, uh, crucial state. And there's a real metric. Forget the polls. Polls are like phrenology, that fake Victorian science of, you know, reading bumps on your head. It's a dead silence. It's science. It's a scam. The real the real metric are two things, the rallies wherever the president goes. And he's doing multiple rallies. He just got off over Covid two weeks ago and he's Mm. doing multiple rallies every single day. Thousands of individuals waiting hours to see him. And then Biden, whenever he comes out of his basement, he's got six people there standing in painted circles. And he's reading a massive teleprompter. Number one, the rallies and number two, one that showed me in 2016 that he can win. If you get out of the swamp, if you get out of the the, the, the urban elites in in Boston, in L. A., in New York, you know, it's like getting outside of London. We have yard signs in American elections, and the only yard signs you see in real America, where the salt of the earth lives, are of the presidents, are Donald Trump yard signs. And that's far more telling than any poll by any company.
3: Yes. Well, I uh, heard a fascinating uh, conversation on James Wells' show the other night. He had a pastor on, a Trump-supporting uh, pastor, who was talking about how um, one, of the, um, one, of the, one of the Trump uh, organisations did a poll of known Trump supporters, people who had actually contributed to the Trump campaign. Uh, they were called anonymously by this polling company uh, who said that they were not... Um, uh, any in any way connected to Trump and they asked which way they were voting and all of these people who had given money to Trump uh, of about 40 percent of them didn't say that they were going to vote for Trump because they don't want to admit it
1: there, there was a poll by the libertarian uh, organization here Cato the Cato Institute mm. about two months ago where they where, where the respondents said 70 percent of of us are not prepared to admit our political identity at work because of cancel culture. So in in a culture where where people have negative consequences for admitting they're a conservative, then how does polling function? It doesn't function. And on top of that, the campaign has been very open. They've opened their kimono after every single rally and they register the people coming to the rallies. And Mike, we are seeing unbelievable figures between 20 and 30% of everyone going to a Trump rally is either a former Democrat or they've never voted before and we've brought them into the conservative fold. That's historic with with that kind of a silent majority, anything is possible in 11 days time.
3: I think absolutely right. And 11 days is not very long. We'll be speaking to you, of course, on the night, Sebastian, uh, on our overnight show, because we're going to be sitting here watching uh, and, and being fascinated by everything as it happens, of course. Um, any last minute kind of hiccups? Can anything go wrong? Uh, it's still going to be pretty close, I think, isn't it?
1: I, look, I see two scenarios, likely scenarios. One is, an, uh, is, is a neck and neck race where it's impossible because of the 80 million mail-in ballots that Democrat governors have sent out unbidden to American voters. And because there's so many of those to be left counted on the morning of the election, that they can't declare a 270 uh, electoral college victory for either side, and then it just goes to the courts and they battle it out in the courts. That's a possible scenario. But the one that's looking more and more likely is an incredible landslide for the president. We, we win so incredibly that it doesn't matter how many votes are left to count in the mail-in ballots. He goes out at 10.30 at night and says, Thank you, America. I'm back. And that's the one that we're playing for.
3: Well, do you know, that's exactly what happened to Boris Johnson. You know, we were being told by the mainstream media. You'll have heard what I said earlier, that BBC News is hardly carrying any of last night's uh, debate, which tells me that that tells you which tells me they think Trump won it. Right. Um, But mainstream (laughs) media in this country, right up until the exit poll at 10 p.m. on the night of December the 12th, were predicting either a very close race or a possible Jeremy Corbyn win. And Boris won with an 80-seat majority. They couldn't have got it more wrong.
1: Mike, I'll just say one thing. Jeremy, who? (laughs) Indeed. Absolutely right.
3: Sebastian, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. We'll see you on election night. Sebastian Gorka, advisor to President Donald Trump, host of America First, of course. Get him uh, on the radio whenever he's on. It's fantastic stuff. Follow him on Twitter, of course, at Sebastian Gorka. He's a top man. The
1: Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
3: Uh, Now, it's that time of the day where we're about to uh, get ourselves some homeschooling because it's just after the news at 12.30. The Perry Awards, of course, coming up uh, in a little while as well. Uh, But let's talk now uh, to Lee Chambers, environmental psychologist, wellbeing consultant, because we're going to talk about the colour wheel and the best colours that you should surround yourself with if you happen to be working from home. Uh, Very good afternoon to you, Lee. Yeah, pleasure to be with you today, Mike. Thank you very much indeed. Now, you know, you're probably going to think I'm a bit argumentative now because I'm looking at the colour wheel, which is is this thing here, which is fantastic to look at. It's a lovely sort of design, even in and of itself. You say, or it is said, that one of the top colours to use is white. And I'm wondering why white isn't on the colour wheel. Well, ultimately, it's because when you mix those colours, it's
6: where you actually mix them. And white is actually a tone. So we actually use white
3: to change those colours. Right. So and white, because so, I mean, cause I was wondering if it's something to do with the rainbow. Because you know how when you refract the light and you get all those seven colours of the rainbow, which are very similar to the colours on the wheel, whether if you were sort of able to refract it backwards, it would, it would turn white?
6: Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a very, that's a very interesting point, actually. <laughs> and obviously, from a psychological perspective, we tend to very much look at the... Colours themselves
3: and how people interact with them when they're in those environments. Yes. And you're looking at the kind of the blending of the colours maybe and and, and the the idea of, of having colours around you, I suppose, which might change your mood, right? Yeah, definitely, and and a lot
6: of obviously scenarios and design is based around how can we utilise colours to change people's behaviours, to change how they think, the feel, and their emotions.
3: Right. I mean, interesting that you say that because I'm sitting in a studio here, which is largely kind of dark in in the sense that it's um, uh, you know, there's bits of black, there's bits of grey. It's quite a dark environment. Um, I don't know yeah. if there's a reason for that, you know, for audio purposes or for video purposes. But but why does white come out as the best colour? Um, in general for sort of people, people's offices?
6: Yeah, I mean, if you look at my office there, it's majority white. Right. Um, I mean, it's a kind of bright and clear colour. Um, but what we've actually found is if your office is completely white without accents of colour, can actually be a little bit depressing. Mm. Uh, yeah, it is clean. Yeah, it is concise. And yeah, you know, white paint is unanimously available across the world. Uh, but quite often it's actually utilising other colours to kind of almost stimulate us into different psychological states while we're working.
3: We can become more productive. But I guess you can, having got a sort of base white, you can put different things on it. I mean, like you've got some writing behind you, you've got some little flashes of colour. I presume you could probably hang paintings, you know, you could do things to to disturb, disturb the white, I suppose.
6: Yeah, and ultimately the ability to kind of build colour on top of white. I mean, white is a great base colour to then add accents of different colour, usually something that's a bit bolder that can promote different elements but you can also like you said, use landscapes use morals yeah uh, I tend to do a lot of work around using plants to kind of get that natural biophilic effect right. in people's offices
3: I mean people say if you are working from home you should always try and find a specific specific kind of designated space that you work from rather than just sort of you know getting out of bed and and sitting next to the bed in a, or sitting at the dining table or something like that it's better if you can have a designated space right
6: Yeah, definitely. Because if you can psychologically detach from that domestic environment, which to be honest, you spend a lot of your time living, sleeping, and relaxing in, if you can partition a particular space, then psychologically it does kind of put you in work when you're in that place. But obviously, we don't all have that luxury given the fact that most domestic homes are not designed for us to
3: work from no quite and i mean one of the sort of the top 3 choices after white you've got beige and then grey but then yellow i was quite interested in as number 4 because that's quite a bright colour to have as a as a painting as a painted colour on a wall because you know i i sort of judge like for example maybe restaurants by what colour they're painted and i'm i'm not a big fan of like a very loud sort of colour in a restaurant
6: yeah, I mean, when my job court did this uh, survey, it was interesting because a lot of my work surrounds bringing more blue and more green into uh-huh. workplaces, those natural colours that tend to actually, you know, do implement productivity, elements of creativity, but actually keep people a little bit less stimulated in work environments. Uh, but yellows tended to be used for innovation, for engineering campuses, It's really a color that quite a lot of creative places use. And it does increase that memory retention. It's actually a great color for learning. But also, it really increases eye fatigue, probably the quickest color to do so. Yeah don't want to be in a yellow environment for eight hours a day it no probably- i mean i'm thinking
3: yellow i've been in places that have got orange walls which i'm not also not very keen on but if it's more pastel colors is that because obviously the color wheel suggests that you can you can mix those colors and you said about what you would put white maybe with a with a strong yellow to make it kind of more pale
6: yeah, so if you add white as a tint to yellow, you can bring it down so it stimulates you a lot less mm. and actually is a lot less straining on your eyes. Can you imagine that the beauty is, obviously, to say one colour, but there's so many ways to darken or lighten that particular colour yes. that you can actually find
3: a real good balance that works for you. Right, and I'm looking at this colour wheel again, and it says the first sort of real circular colour diagram was designed actually by Sir Isaac Newton in 1666. That's a long time ago.
6: Yeah. And I mean, again, when it's kind of looking and understanding how light works and obviously the colours that we see and the kind of practical combination, it's really a bit of a mix of art and science at the same time. Right. Uh, it's really interesting to think that from an origins perspective, we've been looking at this for you know
3: hundreds of years, but only from a psychological perspective, it's still relatively new. Right. And so, I mean, what about pink? That comes in around about ninth, I think, on the on the list of popular colours. I mean, I suppose certain workspaces would benefit from pink, but it's still very much associated with sort of, you know, um, I suppose softer businesses perhaps.
6: Yeah, and I think it's it's obviously really popular in the beauty industry yeah. and hair dressing. And it does kind of give that element of, you know, pampering type feel. Uh, what's interesting is I previously worked in football clubs and a football club that I won't mention had their away dressing room painted in pink. <laughs>
3: But and how did that, that? And how did that work out? Um, well, they got relegated, so I don't think it worked that well, to be honest. <laughs> Maybe they should have had their own dressing room pink. It might have given them some kind of a different stimulant or something like that. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, no, it's funny, isn't it? Because colours do mean so much, particularly when you talk about football and sport. I mean, colours mean so much to people, fans in particular. Yeah. You know, you you've seen, I'm sure, all of those stories. Remember that terrible grey. Manchester United strip that everybody hated and nobody we wanted them, them to wear. And you couldn't see the players and they, and they started playing worse, you know? Yep. It's, a, it's amazing. I mean, Southampton Adam that day, to mm. be honest. Yeah, I know. It's absolutely. I can see, I can feel your pain. But, you know, um, it's, it's interesting. So are you finding that more and more businesses now are kind of looking at their surroundings and trying to, um, you know, if they are decorating their office, they're not just doing it because it looks a bit dirty and it needs a bit of a freshening up. They're actually thinking about it.
6: Yeah, it's interesting because obviously with, with with everything that's happening at the minute, there's a lot of looking around how we environmentally make our office health, health and safety compliant in these current conditions. And obviously there's lockdowns here and lockdowns there. Uh, I'm getting a lot about how people can set up the working from home spaces to be more productive. Uh, also looking at the future of offices, obviously density will be different. Uh, and just looking really at the kind
3: of how can we create backdrops that help people to become more productive in work. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Well, listen Lee, thanks very much. Indeed, Lee Chambers, environmental psychologist, well-being consultant. If you've never thought about it, uh, maybe you should think about it. Think about changing the color of where you're working from home maybe, uh, or even your office uh, where other people are working because it could uh, have an effect on their productivity.
2: Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It's
3: very nearly 12:47. It's Friday and it's time for this.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Perrier Awards.
3: Uh, now we have full compliance. We didn't have full compliance uh, early on, but it's there now, thankfully. Yes. Uh, welcome, Marta, to uh, the studio.
5: Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Oh, I'm very loud. Hang
3: on. Are you? Maybe it's just you because go. your ears have yeah. got the headphones on. It's loud. the
5: headphones, yeah.
3: Yeah, okay. I don't think you sound very loud. I think you sound no,
5: fine. No, no, I think I think the were the headphones were very loud. Yes. Yeah. People don't want to hear about this. So. No. It's yeah. been quite a
3: week though, hasn't it?
5: Goodness gracious me, yes it you has. Know, amazing. It has. Uh it's been a really good week, but oh, it's been long.
3: It has been long. It's Busy. Been very long. But there's been yeah. a lot going on.
5: There's been lot a lot going on. A lot of great guests, a lot of
3: great callers. Yes. A lot of studio new callers. Guests. Those of
5: new callers, yeah, as well, yeah. Mm. But that happens every week it does. Fair, it does.
3: It does. We're really on a roll. It's going very we well. We
5: are. Um, anyway, yes. good afternoon. Thank you. And welcome to the Perry Awards. This is where we look back over the past week of the so-called, so-called. Independent Republic of mm. Mike Graham on Dog Radio and choose our favourite moment. Yes. Uh, as it's tradition, Mike, the first Perry goes to you. It's the impression of Thank the week. You.
3: Now, either the people of Manchester are in grave danger, as Jack Nicholson would say, is there any other kind... There you go. Not bad. Not I'd bad, say. no, not bad at all. I do watch that film a lot. A few good men. It's called.
5: Yeah, I've never seen that. You've
3: never seen it? No. It's a great film.
5: No, my dad my dad I think he used to have it Kevin like. Kevin Bacon, Tom yeah.
3: Cruise, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Demi Moore, as oh, she yeah. likes to call herself. It's a good cast.
5: What do you mean as she likes to call herself? Isn't well, that her name?
3: Well I used to call her Demi Moore.
5: Oh, is it Demi? But she
3: calls it Demi. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know it's her name and everything.
5: Yeah, but, maybe she doesn't, doesn't know how to say her own name. Maybe.
3: That is a problem sometimes on the someone radio. To tell her. Yes. she Yes. Doesn't know. I know just the person.
5: Yes. Uh, but don't worry, dear listeners, we also have the Megan impression of the
3: Excellent. week. Excellent. We've been able to spend more time with Archie. Because Archie doesn't have any friends. But we're his friends now. <laughs> I shouldn't have had a sip of water no. and spat it all over <laughs> the machinery. That wouldn't have been good. No,
5: no, absolutely not. It did not happen. No, So good. it's all good. Thankfully. Now let's go, a <laughs> let's go to let's go to friend of the show, Professor Carol Sikora. Mm. He provided the surprise pet of the week.
2: And in the numbers are going down, and yet tomorrow night, that's it. Wales is closed. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> so it was great. I thought he was in his office as well. Does he yes. have a dog there?
5: No, I think he was at home. Okay, I'm not sure. Right. Chico is the name of his dog. Is it? Yes, we've we've sort of met him. Okay. Because um, sometimes before he goes on air, like Chico's yeah. just around and oh, Paul nice. Carol has to like escort him out of the room. Ah. Yeah, very they're very not kindly. keen on
3: Zoom calls, dogs are they? No, no. They like to interrupt them.
5: Bless them, they don't yeah. know what's going on. They don't. Um, another friend of the show, Baroness Kate Howie. Yes. She popped in to see us on Wednesday, mm. and she won a peril award for the classic wrong namer of the week. Quirious but you know what, I, what they did. I, you know what I do think I might. I think, and it's not anti-Mike Hancock at all. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, Mike Hancock. Matt Hancock. Matt Hancock. Yes, Goodness, didn't even get his name right. Don't worry.
3: <laughs> um, Some people have got his name wrong in worse ways than that.
5: Yes, I would That's say not that. Bad. I bad. Mike Hancock's say, all right. Yeah, if you, if, you, if you're going to get it wrong, you might as get wrong. Don't like, don't um, try to say it though. In case no, no, you no, get no, it wrong no. In a different no. I will not say anything. No, but you know. It's nice, you know, for for someone to be mistaken for Mike because yeah. it's normally you being mistaken for Graham. That's true. So it's this is a nice change. It is. Yeah, I, it I, I like a things change. things up a little bit. Why so not? do I. Caller Mike in York uh, wins the I could not care less tower award. <laughs>
3: well, it's I can barely see across the street. You know, I can't actually boast that I can see the Tower of London now because I can't can't see it. It's shrouded in mist.
2: Yeah. Well. Anyway. Uh, as a person who
3: cares <laughs> in Manchester, care less, he didn't he? care. No, I thought you might put that one in because I thought of that at the time. <laughs> I
5: thought, how well, rude. It's just a classic. It's yeah. like rural, yeah, whatever. Reward. Yeah, um, we can we can sort of see the Tower of London today.
3: Today it's a bit grey, but it, yeah. I mean the other day it was so rainy that you literally couldn't see a bit more than about fifty yards.
5: Yeah, it was. It was. It, it rained quite a bit while you were talking to Gawker. Sebastian so Gorka. Did it? Yeah. It oh, did. I didn't notice. Because yeah. I looked and I was like, oh, it's boring.
3: I was so engrossed, I yes. didn't realise. Well,
5: obviously. Yes. Obviously. Mm. But, um, you know, we've got eyes everywhere.
1: Yeah, we in have. In the
5: control room. And um, caller Chris in somewhere I can remember, a Perry, for forgetting what he wanted to say.
6: Well, it's just well, it's three simple facts, I believe. Mm. Um, firstly, we've never, humankind has never achieved herd immunity without a vaccine. Right. Mm. Secondly, the fastest vaccine ever produced took just over five years. Mm. Mm-hmm.
3: And I can't remember the third. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, well, we'll leave it there then, Chris, shall we? Thank you very much indeed. I uh, think he was on the south coast somewhere, like Portsmouth maybe. Yes,
5: somewhere like that. Yes. I'm not sure. There were like very long pauses as well. Yeah. Which are really bad I for wonder, us. Now I want
3: to know what the third one was.
5: Well... I guess we'll never know. We'll never know. I don't know.
3: Well, Chris, if you if remember what it was, by yes. all means, ring ring back.
5: Yes, please. But not now though. No, not now, because obviously... we won't be able to get you on. No, but you know, maybe some other time. Yeah, I don't know. Please. Um, another one for you, Mike. Mm. Congratulations. This week, you also win a Perry for your excellent language skills.
3: Curaciers and hot <laughs> 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 ah, I've no idea what they are, but it was something to do with um, the Civil War, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah.
5: So it was part of the homeschooling. Yes. And, uh, yeah, you said those words. I mean, I don't...
3: it sounds like Cavoissier, which is a brandy. Oh, is it? Yeah.
5: Oh, interesting. But that's, it could be. That's
3: all I know about that.
5: Could be like a Civil War brandy. Could be. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just making things up at this point. Yeah. Now, in our series of a strange handovers between yourself and afternoon ah, yes. presenter Ian Collins, yeah. I give you the Perry Award for the chicken chat of the week.
3: Who takes grilled chicken on a submarine? Well, right. I mean, but one one has to assume that by the time he reached the the, the submarine, the chicken was you know yeah. perhaps not in its best shape as it's been in the past. Well, it's described as sort of half eaten as well, isn't it? At yeah. one point, I think he's. Had oh, some I think he'd had a good old munch in there. The yeah, chicken leftovers. he he'd, one he'd one gone in for it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for the kill, as it were. Blimey! Right, where's these warheads? horseman me another drumstick. Like, you remember the other guy that crashed the submarine? Up in, yeah, there, that's in right. In Scotland, managed to hit it into the side of a loch. Drumstick, joystick. Which ones we? Yeah, I know. Unbelievable. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. It's all about chicken.
5: Yeah. Mm. I just, I just think that you, you've gone into this theme of like um, animal theme handles. Surreal. Yes.
3: Yes. yes. I, see my favourite kind of radio that. Yeah. I no. I quite like that sort of radio. No,
5: I like that. I like that as well. It provides yeah. content. Yes. Makes well, it my does. life it's easier. What we do. So please keep going. I will. Um, Ian might tell you a story. He went to the gym the other day. Oh yeah. Yeah, he's been talking about it all day. Oh, has he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well,
3: was it an unusual visit for him to go there? Probably so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, I'll never be telling that story. No,
5: of course not. Um, another friend of the show, Adia um, Smith from The oh, Free yeah. Drinkers, joined us for a quick wine tasting uh, yesterday, mm. and he provided the almost awkward moment of the week.
3: Yeah, one final piece of expertise I need from you. I had a birthday party uh, in the summer, uh, which a couple of people that you may know uh, attended, right? And... Um, Somebody gave me a bottle of Pomerol, which is one of the expensive ones, about 95 quids worth. Right, But I don't know who it was. And I don't know who, how to find out, because basically, if you ask somebody who didn't give it to you, they're going to feel bad, you know. And, and if you ask somebody who did give it to you, they're going to go, well, didn't you know it was mine, you know. But what I don't know is when to drink it, because I presume I should probably hold on to it for a while. You know, it was me who gave you that, right? Was it?
4: <laughs> no, it
3: wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> Well, I would have believed him if yeah, he would no. stuck with that. I know. I thought
5: it could have been him as well. Yeah.
3: Well, it could have been it because, have been. I mean, he's the sort of guy that would, would bring that kind of expensive wine yeah. to someone.
5: Again, we'll never Still know. Still don't know. Well, might be Chris in Portsmouth <laughs> <No. be. Yeah. laughs> or whatever so he was. It wants. seems unlikely. <laughs> I don't know. And finally, Mike, a uh, promotion for you ah. as a farewell present before your week off. Yes. I'm officially appointing you. Talk Radio's deadline correspondent. Thank you.
3: Deadline has indeed passed. It was midday. Uh, It is now uh, 12.04, which means we've got four minutes after the deadline that Andy Burnham was given. This message timed at 12.22, just about to embark on 12.23. That's 23 minutes past the deadline. Thank you. That's my tribute to Alistair Stewart. Yes. Thank you.
5: Yes. Um, thank you all so much. Um, anyway, that's all for the Perrier Awards. And who knows what will happen next week?
3: I mentioned there might be some Perrier Awards next week, might there? Possibly. With Richard Madeley. I don't know. We shall see.
5: I don't know. We'll see. I don't know him that well.
3: No. Well, you're about to get to know him <laughs> yeah, very well. I know. Anyway. So it'll all be good. Thank you very much thank indeed.
2: You. The Perrier Awards on Talk Radio.